I found myself relating to the parents in the conversations with siblings and siblings-in-laws. And honestly, for the first third, I already knew the train wreck that was coming, but it seemed like they were going to be fine. They've got a plan. They can get through it. They know a guy. And I just kept holding my breath, knowing the other shoe was going to drop in a really, really bad way. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. Everything is awesome when you're living out a dream. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. Everything is awesome when you're living out a dream. Have you heard the As the occupying forces left the country, insurgent radicals stormed the cities, taking control faster than anyone expected. Whoa, whoa. This is Quarantine Comics. You're going to the CNN mode. As you remember, last week we queued up Dragon Hoops about high school basketball. Not bad news coming out of Afghanistan. (sighs) Sorry, old chum. No can do. Cannot talk about the sports ball this week. And this is not about Afghanistan and the Taliban. We're talking about Cambodia in the late 1970s. So we had last week our episode about Korean war trauma, and I guess you are interested in repeating it. (sighs) I'm Roman Segal. I'm Ryan Joe. And we are two dudes who find ourselves continuing to read dark, dark tales of history that maybe we should be learning some lessons from. I don't know if we're learning lessons at all, though. (laughs) It's like they say in that song, everything is awesome. Maybe we'll read some happier comics about cats soon. Fake news. Season three is the darkest season. So I'm laughing because I really want to cry after the past couple of books we've been reading. This week, we are reading Year of the Rabbit, written and illustrated by Tian Vasna. I apologize if I butchered that. This book is an autobiographical depiction of the author's family journey in Cambodia from the moments the Khmer Rouge took power three days before his birth. Now, A lot of Americans might not know about Cambodian history or what happened in year zero. It's not really taught in our history books, and a lot of us found out about it in college. Taking place in the late 1970s, the book is a harrowing, triggering account of one family's journey to make sense of, attempt escape from, and survive what is now regarded as one of the great human disasters of the 20th century that, again, most people just don't know or don't talk about. I only just happened upon this graphic novel accidentally at the local library, and honestly, I was afraid to read it because of what I learned about the Khmer Rouge and their Year Zero campaign when I first visited Cambodia years ago. Uh, As a father, as someone whose parents experienced political traumas that I don't know nearly enough about, this book put me in a very uncomfortable state of reflection. But Ryan, before I unpack my feelings anymore, I forced you at the last minute to drop a much more joyful book, which I hope we'll read later, so we could talk about this one right now, because it felt particularly relevant given the situation on the ground in Afghanistan, with the Taliban sweeping back in, portending a pretty bad situation for the Afghan people. I I guess I gotta ask, with all the shitty, terrible headlines that seem to be multiplying every day, beyond this book, how are you holding up, man? I'm holding up fine. I'm just looking forward to next week's cheerful read, which is a Junji Ito graphic novel about depression called No Longer Human. That'll really cheer us all up. No, but but that back to this book, though. I, it deals with atrocities, just like the books we read last week. Kumso Gendry Kim's The Waiting and Grass also dealt with 
horrible atrocities. But what's important about all three of those books is it deals with atrocities that really aren't that well known in or, or, or really taught, I don't think, in, in the Western world. My exposure to the atrocities of the Khmer Rouge mostly came from the movie uh, The Killing Fields, which yeah. was a big movie. But one thing that's significant about it is that it's really from the point of view of the white people who are there, like this white photographer, who's kind of American photographer, who's cataloging the atrocities. And this one is much more resonant because it's really from the point of view of this family and how much this family is disrupted almost instantaneously. It's like one day you're going shopping and the next day you're running for your life. And how sudden that changes. And, and that, that's something that struck me here with, with Year of the Rabbit. Just like it struck me when I read Gendry Kim's The Waiting. How quickly society falls apart. You're doing something very domestic, very simple, very basic. And then suddenly the world has just 180. And this isn't a zombie movie. This is like historical events that happened. And when typically when I read a book, I go into tunnel vision. I try to ignore everything. I don't look at my phone. And again, we did not intend for this book to to be in the, the rotation, but I picked it up from the library. And as halfway through reading it or a third of the way through it, I had to stop because it was really triggering me. And I don't know why. It's probably new parenthood, just exhaustion. And I texted you. I was like, this book is really bothering me. I'm not sure how I feel about it. And the first thing you said was, like, we should read it. And I was like, I don't know. I need to sit on this. Because the book opens, to your point, it's it's not like a normal day, but it's like, tune in on a family. Here's a bunch of people mm. going through life just like us, like literally just like us. And while it's written by the son, who's pretty much a baby in this entire book, the Khmer Rouge came into power three days before he was born. It's told from the perspective of his parents. And I found myself relating to the parents in the conversations with siblings and siblings-in-laws. And honestly, for the first third, I already knew what was going to happen. I knew the train wreck that was coming, but it seemed like they were going to be fine. They've got a plan. They can get through it. They know a guy. And I just kept holding my breath, knowing the other shoe was going to drop in a really, really bad way. And, and eventually it does. Eventually they are arrested. Eventually they are taken to a camp. And yeah, I, yeah. I, so the first third, it almost feels like fiction, right? Because they are on a quest, a quest to escape. And to be a you, happy ending, exactly. Right, yeah. You and I, avid fans of you know pop culture, we're familiar with these stories. And we, we see them actually making pretty good progress as they go to a place that they presume is safe after many narrow escapes. A safe escapes. village, exactly. And they've and got a plan. And then suddenly they get captured because of some stupid decision. And that's when everything gets fractured. Up to that point, you are keeping track of all of the characters, what they want, how they're reacting to the situation. Once they get captured, the family is entirely split apart. And from there on out, they're sent to this labor camp, the Khmer Rouge re-education camps and that's where everything gets confused intentionally so because once you're in like a, a labor camp the timeline is beating together you might remember certain incidents but nothing really stitches together into like a cohesive into a cohesive beginning middle and end and so that whole that whole structure that he was that you were expecting it's a bad dream it's a bad dream 
yeah, suddenly it just breaks apart and suddenly like literally nothing makes sense. And it's just people trying to survive moment to moment. No longer is there this hope of escape of this quest to like get everyone together and move to a safe place. Just survive day after day. Just stay alive. There's something I've come to appreciate with a lot of the nonfiction graphic novels I've been reading is the art of cartooning. In superhero comics or even like the westerns, the pulps that we've been reading, there's like a stylized realism. Yeah. Not too dissimilar from video games, right? Like I've been playing far too many PS4 video games lately. And it just really immerses you. Wow. If that zombie apocalypse happened, here's what it would really look and feel like. All of that real that hyper realism and all of these fictional accounts, again, be it uh, The Waiting and Grass and some of the Lucy Nisley stuff I've been reading and this book, it's cartoony. Arab yeah. of the Future, it's cartoony. And it, I don't want to say it disarms you and it charms you with it, but it gives you like this abstract lens to navigate these horrible nonfiction scenarios, if that makes sense, or these traumatizing nonfiction scenarios. The art... It's it's pretty good sequential art, I guess, but that's not the point. It's the, I need to tell you this story. This is the only way I know how to tell you this story. Get over the art. I'm storyboarding what really happened. So I don't think it's so much get over the art. I, so two things. One, it's when you're being cartoony, you can be way more expressive and mm. capture maybe the emotion of the moment, how you felt at the time, Arab mm. of the future. But actually, Kumsa Gendry Kim, they're both really, really good at that. At, mm -hmm, at using mm -hmm. those images to create those just those raw emotions and they if they tried to adhere to a realistic style they would it'd be undermined because mm. you you realistic style you expect it to be much more literal and that's the other issue particularly with the korean books there is that issue our guest jay wan chung brought this up this issue of of remembrance and of collecting the the memories of your of of what happened from the past and recording it with fidelity. And you're never going to record it with complete fidelity because whoever you're talking to has an agenda or has a specific way of remembering things. And that's certainly true with Year of the Rabbit because the 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 author, you know, certainly doesn't remember anything. He was just a child at the time, or he doesn't remember anything. He remembers everything as as a child. And he's again trying to get the accounts from his relatives. His relatives so, who don't want to talk uh, about it. Who, who don't want necessarily want to, exactly, who don't necessarily want to talk about it. And so creating all of this in a cartoony style frees him up so that you don't expect it to be necessarily a little a literal recollection of what happened because that would honestly be impossible it's he's trying to capture the confusion of the moment of the moments and what everyone was going through as emotionally as they tried to survive and I, he does a, a really fantastic job at doing that. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess what I was trying to say is the art of cartooning. When we read graphic novels, be it Hellboy, Marvels, DC stuff, Vertigo stuff, we don't think of it as cartooning, I guess is what I would say. Uh, and the yes. cartoon arts is this thing that I'm really developing an appreciation of as I spend more time reading nonfiction graphic novels. I find like the cartoonists, the so-called cartoonists, uh, I'm thinking of like Chester Brown. Yeah, exactly. Crumb, exactly. Right. They have, a, it feels like they have a lot more leeway to explore these, explore 
what happened in the past, the emotional resonance of what happened in the past, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, yeah. versus if you're if if it's if it's like a very realistic depiction, it almost sometimes you you read some of those historical comics that are meant to teach and they're written they're illustrated in a much more realistic style. They feel almost didactic. Documentary almost. Do- yeah. yeah, but but I would say almost stayed devoid of the unable to convey the emotions of what the people who are actually going through those moments of transition mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. horror are actually feeling. And again, creating it in this cartoony style gives gives that freedom. I'm not speaking from experience. That's my that's my assumption here. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with any of that. I, I just I find myself more compelled to my first understanding, I never watched the killing fields in all seriousness, full confession, when I lived in Asia, we were told we should go check out the temples of Angkor Wat. And so I got from the local library, the Lonely Planet book about Cambodia. We booked our flights. And on the flight from Singapore to Cambodia, I read the 15-page history chapters at the front of the Lonely Planet. That's how I got a lot of my Asian history, traveling to these places, reading the Lonely Planet before. And then obviously, we went and visited a lot of these things beyond just the temples and the UNESCO sites. And this was a much more compelling education of it. Like, you can skim over 15 pages of paragraphs explaining history to you, and you can visit the killing fields and be still abstracted from it. I've, I've been to hmm. sites of concentration camps, and I feel abstracted from it. But with these graphic novels, and again, it, maybe it's not just the cartooning art, it's also the deeply personal account. We're going to zoom in on one family's journey, and we're you know, going to punctuate the chapters with either uh, historical explanations or fun infographics about what to avoid doing, <laughs> what to avoid saying, maps, etc. It, it felt like a better history lesson, I guess. Like Reading well, this made me want to go reread the history and rethink about the history. Sometimes when you go to a museum, there's a sanitizing effect. It's it's like something that happened in the past. It's a monument of what happened to the past, and the past is over, right? That's like the feeling you get when you go to a museum. And here you're you're feeling Let me let me just for an exa- as an example, there's this scene where some where some of the city folk who've been relocated to a re-education camp are first to forced to do labor in a field, a swampy field. And one of the women says, Oh my God, there's something stuck on my leg. And it turns out to be leeches and she's freaking out. Oh my God, I can't get them off. And then some women who were from the country say, Oh, those idiots must be from the big sea from the big city. Imagine not knowing what a leech is. Eesh. And um, it's like these small moments that reveal details of what life was like in the re-education camp and also details the different type of types of people who were there, the city folk versus the country folk and how in a lot of ways, those the people from the city were looked down on. And it, it it's, it's a two panel scene that encapsulates all of that. It dramatizes all of that. And it gives all of that information without really through, through this, through this moment that you're witnessing. And again, if you were to try to do that in a, museum it would literally be a placard on a wall and you read about it which creates a sterilizing a a sterilizing effect you're absolutely right this this book is just a very lived-in experience and i keep coming back to it I, i didn't get to join the conversation last week but 
it's weird for me as a parent, as a quote unquote family man now, I can't help but not put myself in these characters' shoes. These sh- these characters or or empathize with the characters from my perspective as a father. So in either it was the waiting or grass, like watching what's happening to this little girl, I could not help but imagine if my daughter were in these situations. Reading this book where they just had their baby son and they're carrying him around and you watch the boy grow from literally a baby that is born in a village to a four or five year old running around naked outside. I I couldn't help see these things from the father's point of view. And it literally just made my heart tighten up to read this. And we should strive to have empathy when it's not, oh, wow, imagine if that happened to you. But it it made it more visceral and more I would have been more removed from reading this five or six years. Yeah. Was there was there were there a moments in particular that really grabbed you? You mentioned this was very difficult for you to get through. What you know, was it the whole book or was there something in particular that really impacted you? There were definitely a couple moments. The one when it feels like they're going to make it. They've got a plan. <laughs> <laughs> and knowing for a fact that that is not going to work out. And again, knowing this is not fiction, this is something about to go horribly wrong that happened in real life to real people. This isn't a historical fiction. This more or less happened to this guy's family. So that that moment of realization of, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, Jesus, this is about to happen. Like, that was the first one. Other moments, it's... It's not any one moment. It's it's there's a moment where the sun stops breathing. Page 189. Oh, he's sick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I don't even think that's the main child. I could be wrong. Uh, There's moments. There's a moment when they're finally trying to make their escape across the border. And the husband is separate. He has to first with the with the help of these smugglers, these Southeast Asian coyotes. They he has to separate from his wife and child. And he just has to do it. He has no choice. And then he is separated from them, and he doesn't know if they survive. And those moments of uncertainty, I actually didn't know if who was going to make it. It just mm. created not just, again, not just narrative tension with me, but legitimate concern and frustration. Even though I wasn't watching real-life events unfold before me, I was. I, I, I could flip to the end and see it. And so, again, everything that involved the family— not the extended family, but this man's immediate family. When he's told to go to a different camp and to abandon his wife. Yeah. When his wife is caught for growing tomato. When the kids are snitching. Like that, I, I was so scared that was their son going to be a snitch? I had forgotten that it was the author who wrote the book. Like, because these kids were basically turned. So there wasn't any one moment, but there were particular moments that just exacerbated the whole situation for me. Yeah, the book is really filled with these nightmarish details, these things that just come up as threats. And you're not sure whether they're going to be threats over the long term or whether it's just like this short term thing that shows what's happening in the camp or that shows the tenor of the camp. And one thing this book captures really well, and I I put like Gendry Kim's books about the waiting and grass into into this category as well, is they both do a really good job capturing just the constant confusion of what's happening. Like they're trying to survive, but the landscape keeps changing. The rules keep changing. The ways to survive keep changing. They don't know who to make, who to please. They don't know who to, who to, who to trust. And that's a constant throughout pretty much throughout this book. There's enemies everywhere and there are allies as well. They just don't know who's who. And that's one thing 
that made this book so powerful. This this constant sense of confusion and disorientation that every member of the family was going through. And once it made sense of the situation, it was like they were thrust in another situation that completely upended everything. And as you were saying earlier, when you go to a museum, the museum's job is to explain and to contextualize. And for the people here, there is no explanation. There is no contextualization. Yeah. It's just life or death. And upon reflection, I've had this book sitting with me a few days after finishing it. This is going to ruin it. I'm sorry. But like, they make it. They're fine. The author moved to France and studied the cartoon arts and decided to write this book and interview his family. And it goes without saying in history that a lot of families didn't survive this. A lot of people who had the same or similar stories did not make it out. And you can get lost in the statistics of how many people perish. And there's a nice infographic at the end of the book that shows that. But to it, we can become really immune to these sterile numbers. But when you focus in on the one, it becomes concretely real. And again, this is what brings me to today. Like, I actually don't remember if when I texted you my first night reading this, if Afghanistan was falling apart immediately. Yeah. we The U.S. was finally leaving. But to see the scenes at the airport and know, the, the, the best way for me to, to describe, as I said in the intro, is this book is an explanation of what many Afghan families are feeling right now with the Taliban sweeping in. And there's a lot of people who are rich and have rich uncles who can help them get out of the country. And there are a lot who can't. And a lot who are going to be stuck and a lot who are going to experience effectively this book. I'm not saying the Khmer Rouge and the Taliban are the same. What I am saying is a very uncertain situation that does not look very favorable upon the comforts of the modern life or even the comforts of a slightly less than not always shitty life. I'm not saying Afghanistan's been all roses for 20 years, but I don't know. This is the there fear. Really, that there really people... are no happy endings. Again, when you think things are over, things aren't really over, right? Mission accomplished back in 2000 and what, one, two, three, I forget. This, this, this illusion that things are over. And of course, maybe you have 20 years of the situation not being so shitty in Afghanistan, and 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 then suddenly there's upheaval again, and we see that in 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 this account of of Cambodia as well. In 1979, the Vietnamese swept into Cambodia and essentially ended the Khmer Rouge, their their dictatorship. But as we see, that's not the end for this family. In fact, their whole their whole refugee saga starts anew again they start to have some semblance of 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 stability for a little bit when they return to the city after the after their this they're let go or escape from the re-education camp and then there's there's a small moment where it seems like he can be a doctor again and then suddenly we probably have to leave all over again and leave for good so it's it's you always think of the way the american media showcases these events once you declare victory it's over we've won the good guys have won it's this like a fairy tale quest narrative that americans that we like to impose and that narrative really it doesn't it rarely holds up does it there's there's just it's it's always this state of unpredictability for so many of these for so many of these people, even when victory, see, even when there is a, a victory, it's never a permanent victory. 
I don't know what the solutions for this world are. Um, but history has a cycle of repeating shitty things, be it the Korean War, this Afghanistan. Yeah, over exactly. and over again. Yeah. And I don't think the people in power. I don't know what the solution is for them, to be clear, but more empathy and understanding for solving these problems before making foolish mistakes would go a long way. I've thought a lot about this in the, coming out of the Trump era. I'm, I hate to get a little technology on you, but it's been proven in a lot of gender equity work and uh, for the use of virtual reality, right? To literally be in someone else's shoes, but in a, and again, it's not like you're not truly fooling your mind, but virtual reality is the closest thing to do it. But I find graphic novels like this, if you can get over the reasons to not read it, read this versus prose or watching a Hollywood movie. Um, or if HBO makes a series from something like this, it's important. It's that it's as close as you can get to live in someone else's shoes and understand the consequences of decisions. Now, to be clear, with Khmer Rouge and with Cambodia, I need to be careful what I say here, but based on my actual knowledge, look, I'm not sure the U.S. could have or should have done anything here if we had the ability based on the snafus happening in Vietnam uh, a decade prior. But you could make the argument, had we not made some of those choices, we would have been more well positioned to help solve these problems. Similar to Syria, had we not had the blunders in Iraq, like we could have actually done something about Assad in Syria. And I'm getting a little political, but my point is... Would bad decisions have been made if people could really experience and see what life in someone else's shoes really is? Not looking down from on high and reading a history book, but really like viscerally experiencing the shit. Because again, that's the reaction I had from this. I don't know what to do about it. That's the other thing that just makes me even more upset about it. I, if anything, I feel more resignation and despair of my powerlessness to do anything about this. The only thing I can do is torture myself and seek out more books like this. I don't know. Like, but weren't the Khmer, or, wasn't know, the Khmer Rouge though? We talk about American involvement and maybe we might be going on a little bit of a detour here, but wasn't the Khmer Rouge weren't, wasn't their origin tied to American occupation in, in Asia? They were supported by the Chinese, by the, I believe they were supported by the Chinese government. And that was, there's very much I, like I, what I, yeah, yeah, but there's there's very much without saying support of any of other world powers, there very much is the leaders of the Khmer Rouge wanted to create with year zero a socialist utopia. Let's all move right. back to the land, let's redistribute. So anyway, are these Rand Paul talking points about why socialism run amok could lead to this? I guess. I don't believe that. I just think people need to have more empathy for things that are going on. So another funny thing, it's it's I'm reading headlines right now, and we're, we're straying from the comic, but just 10 years ago, we did not want to let Syrian refugees in this country. But now I'm finding Republican governors are coming out saying they want to let many, many refugees from Afghanistan in. Like, where were you 10 years ago? Are you literally just doing this so you can dunk on Biden? Like, I'm not sure if this is virtue signaling, if this is political point scoring, but a refugee is a refugee is a refugee. There is a shitty thing happening somewhere, and chances are our world politics probably drove some of it or our absence from making hard decisions I, I i'm off on a tangent here but it's this book is powerful because it dredges up these thoughts it dredges up these arguments and these what the fuck should we do why aren't we doing more and if more people would read things like this if history would teach more of these things i've told you ryan i've had this conversation and you, you've mentioned on past episodes things about chinese immigration that i was not familiar with 
that was never taught in our history books. I've talked about the South Asian partition and I've had Asian woke progressive friends saying like partitioning a hard drive. And it's like, there's things that we're not aware of. Could we be learning more or could we be learning better is maybe just trying to put it in a chapter in a history book or forcing us to watch a Ken Burns documentary enough? Or do you have to make it digestible? in video game or graphic novel or Hollywood movie or HBO series format? How, how do you make it digestible? And it looks like this are a great way to do that. There is, to your point about Republicans trying to welcome Afghani refugees, obviously the net effect of that would be positive for the refugees, but there is definitely, as we've seen in this book and the books we read last week, there is... There is this political gamesmanship that tends to commoda that com- tends to commodify human life. Yeah, and we're we see that play out in in Korea, and we see, saw we're seeing that playing out in in Cambodia and in this week's Vietnam, in this week's book, Afghanistan, everywhere. Yeah, but the important thing about these books is we see it's easy to just see refugees as like numbers, right? It's like oh man, two million people died in Cambodia. There are X million number of refugees coming here. And when they're numbers, you don't really see them as people. They're how many numbers do you let in? How many numbers do you keep out, right? It's easy to, to be very cold in your decision-making. What these books force you to do, both Kumsik Gentry Kim's books, as well as uh, Year of the Rabbit this week, is they force you to see these, these, these people as people as people who had lives, who had their own desires and dreams until they were completely upended. And to see also their own peculiarities in how they deal with the atrocities and how they deal with the aftermath of, of, of these atrocities. Um, sometimes decades, decades later, you see that the effect that these incidents had and continue to have. So that it's almost acknowledging that even when they are over, and I put that in quotation marks, over to the international community, they are really not over and never will be. I feel like we should come back to the book <laughs> and off our political. I, I actually, I, it almost feels trite to like go into what did you like about the book? What didn't you like? I, you know, it's funny. Uh, you said something earlier about the middle part of the book is really confusing. And I felt that way too. Like, who, I hate to say this, I couldn't tell uh, outside of the immediate no, the main family. Yeah, who's the nephew? Who's the uncle? And there's even a nice family tree. And, and some of the characters look look identical. Okay, um, you said the way it. They're, the you way said it, not me. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, like if you look at the family tree, it, it, they look some of the way they're illustrated. It, they almost seem identical. Really dark thing. Speaking of the family tree, is at the front of the book is the family tree, and a two page spread, and at the back of the book is the exact same family tree with certain faces grayed out. And I thought that was dark but necessary it's almost like bookending what happened before and what happened after who survived this i actually like the confusion obviously you don't want to be confused which character is which normally in a in a graphic novel if you're confused who is who in the middle of a novel in the middle of the story that's that's a weakness of storytelling i didn't feel that here yeah i felt the confusion was the confusion was the point there was no real narrative that connects these different moments within this re-education camp it's just well, day to day everyone is fucked everyone is yeah. fucked that's like it doesn't matter what you look like or how it all blends together into one thick soup of we are fucked yeah well, it's day it's day-to-day survival right how do i get through this day how do i get through this incident how do i get through this moment and 
Well, no one was probably keeping a diary. And again, we're talking about the issues of memory. of collecting memory and collecting these past accounts. Vesna, the 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 author, the the creator, he's he has to get his parents' accounts of what happened and. Their accounts are probably fragmented. They're probably a little bit hazy in parts. They remember, I'm sure, they, they remember certain things probably with absolute clarity and other things without any clarity. And so he's trying to stitch together all of these narratives. So it makes sense that once the family gets separated, once the whole quest of trying to escape in their Mercedes is over and they are they are distributed across these different camps, it makes sense that it would be very, very difficult to to actually stitch together a cohesive narrative. But again, I actually think that's that's one of the strengths of the book. I like how they disassembled their car and decided to take the axles to <laughs> make a cart. That wasn't the happy part of the book. But even like moments well, of ingenuity get taken apart yeah. as you go further. Like the tomato thing that happens later completely fucks them, right? So the ingenuity is a happy fictional storytelling even though it really happened but as you go further in even those moments of like small victories are just completely stripped away from you over and over and over again yeah that's true right it's it's you have these small victories but they're only victories in the moment and then suddenly all that work is 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 for naught but again maybe not because it just did help them survive at least the moment it helped them move their possessions a little bit further down the path and but that mean that that's that's the thing right there's no there's no definitive victory here it's just these small moments of survival the Khmer Rouge are really evil (laughs) I hate to make light of this so they made literally everyone wear uniforms and it's pretty humid in Southeast Asia year-round they're wearing black outfits (laughs) 24-7 that's not nice and scarves. They have to wear scarves as well to show their yeah. Cambodian identity. And even it's interesting, even after they escape and the Khmer Rouge are no longer in power, these are the only clothes they have on their back and they have to keep wearing them. I noticed that. I was like, and the, the entire book, the entire story is just fraught with horrifying, not even horrifying disturbingly real detail continuously and i i love how in between chapters they punctuate some of those details with infographics with charts with just just like this is what this is this is why that was and as you flip back through it after having read some of those infographics it it starts to make the texture really starts to come back to you so I, i i don't i don't have too much more to say this book viscerally just hit me just right in the chest repeatedly and it's necessary like it Honestly, I would have been affected by what's happening in Afghanistan right now, but this this brought it home a lot harder. Just uh, the serendipity is the wrong word, but the serendipitous timing of picking this book up and reading it as as things are falling apart again in another part of the world. Yeah, I, I'm curious because we you weren't able to attend last week's conversation about Kumsi Gendry Kim's two graphic novels, but yeah. you, you, I know you read them and you were affected by them. And I'm just curious, I guess maybe your response, having read Grass and the Waiting one week and then Year of the Tiger the next, because they're definitely philosophically, emotionally, politically, they're all... Those books, what I what I found interesting, one is historical, the other I believe is historical fiction. And the idea of comfort women, I really loved the debate you guys had, not even debate, discussion of the use of that term. If 
as a Western educated person, oh, it doesn't seem that bad until you really understand and really unpack what happened. These girls were abducted and subjected to this life. And not not unlike the middle part of Year of the Rabbit, there's this abstraction of all the interactions that they had with the men because it just all ran together because that's the only way they could cope and survive this horrific trauma that broke them and broke them over and over again. And I, again, I don't remember which of the books it was at which moment it was, but they show these little girls just wanting to go to school, just wanting to do these mm-hmm. things, being precocious and having their humanity stripped away into adolescence in their teen years, such that by the time they're adults, by the time they're the grannies, they're, that's interesting. I don't want to say they're shells of the people they are, but they're, they formed into something different. I don't know. Right. Stronger or resilient. I, I at the same time by it there. They, and it very much, it very much affects their everyday lives. You look at where granny is living. She's living in a, in a house dedicated for comfort women, dedicated yeah. to comfort women. So it affects even her day-to-day living situations, even though it's something that happened when she was a little... After having read it, doing a little bit of like my own research, it literally forced me to want to learn more. Like reading the history, reading the articles had so much more context after this like one very narrow micro take or historical account or amalgamation and understanding, understandably, why these comfort women object to certain things that the Japanese government is saying to Korea today, that they don't want to acknowledge what they want to sweep under the rug versus having actual reconciliation about what happened. It's It leads me to believe, and it would generate a lot more empathy, that we need to hear these stories out more. Not not even just within, I hate to say, the time of the, the comfort women, that generation is about to pass away, and we're going to sweep it under the rug. And I mean, it gets so misused, like 9-11. You've got people in the South who didn't live through it saying, never forget the stickers on the back of their car. Mm. And and the, the one group that does it really well, and props to them, is the Holocaust. Never forget. We cannot forget this. I agree. And there's a lot of other things that we also need to not forget that doesn't get like the, the benefit of the marketing, so to speak. Maybe because there's not enough of a diaspora of grannies or Khmer Rouge survivors. Maybe it's part of the Asian identity of face and forget about it. Don't speak up. Bury it away. Interesting. Yeah. I've thought a lot about that because... And again, right. the, as I've said, the South Asian partition, like there's a whole generation of people that don't want to talk about this because we have to survive and we have to move on. And I'm not saying I'm actually it's it's actually a criticism on Asian culture, not Holocaust survivors. It's why don't we want to speak about this more? Why does it only take a few cartoonists and documentarians? And there is a whole, to be clear, a whole entire body of work around this. But then how come it hasn't permeated the culture? Because yeah, I, we keep repeating these mistakes. So I'm a layperson, so I'm just <laughs> you and me both <laughs> ignorantly. But I mean, but, but in, in Year of the Rabbit, he said that he had trouble getting people to to open up to him. That was certainly there was certainly an issue of collecting the records that Kumsi Kendry Kim went through in in the in in Grass. And as we've seen, there's a complete reluctance within 
in, in Korea to until relatively recently to really address it. The comfort women were stigmatized for, for so long, even within their own society, such that they couldn't return home. Plus, you have a situation where the Japanese... And you had a, and you had a bunch of dudes saying, oh, they wanted it. They, mm-hmm. they fell in love with some of the men. I don't want to like, know if bullshit. it's a bunch of dudes, but that's definitely a revisionist take that's come out of... Um, Sorry, I meant, the, I meant the royal dudes. The royal... Oh, that was an encapsulating dudes of men and women. Yeah, the, but 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 you have the Japanese government also really not taking responsibility yeah. for for what happened. I don't know how Cambodia talks about what happened about its past. And then versus like the Holocaust, you do have this a lot of a lot of literature up, up until the late tw- up, late until mm. the the last decade. A lot of these people reintegrated in society from the Khmer Rouge. It says that, in, and again, I learned this upon reading the back of Year the mm. Rabbit. A lot of these people were not prosecuted until right before they were on their deathbed what the fuck like that's that's the frustrating thing a lot of people who perpetrated these things were like nazis in argentina they they got to escape and live they got away they gotta live they gotta they gotta live until their 80s right magneto's not coming to to them and to put a quarter through their uh, their face we need cambodian magneto So, Ryan, I'm almost afraid to ask my next question. Oh, yeah, you're going to be afraid. But you got to ask it anyway, otherwise we can't move on. (laughs) What are we reading next week? Yeah, well, if you thought next week was going to be cheerful, think again. Next week, we're going to be reading uh, Roman, your favorite graphic novelist, the horror writer, Junji Ito. And we are going to be reading his adaptation of a 1948 Japanese novel by Osamu Tsai. Was it a rom-com at least? No, it's called No Longer Human, and it is an in-depth look at social mores in 20th century Japan, mental illness, and a meditation on suicide. So that's what we're reading next week. Can Can we please find some cat books? something please you know well i would i should mention that junji ito does have a cat book called junji ito's cat diary yawn and moo about i don't know if it's about him but it's about a guy who moves in with a woman or a woman moves in with him and he, she has two cats that he's convinced are demonic but i, I think, think it's there's a, a junji quota you only get two junji ito books a year i love <laughs> I, I i love junji ito i know you he makes you uncomfortable he makes me uncomfortable too but i like being uncomfortable and you don't i like being uncomfortable with nonfiction. <laughs> well no longer human might be loosely veiled autobiography so if as long as you open way, the episode with a rob zombie uh acapella then I'm, I'm all good man all right i'll be working on that for the next week <laughs> so tune in to hear to hear all of that on quarantine comics the happiest podcast in the land and that's our show like what you heard Be sure to share with a friend, subscribe, and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. See lots of pretty pictures of the books we read at qtdcomics.com. And since we're sure no one's listening, prove us otherwise. Shoot an email over to say what I got right and what Ryan got wrong. qtdcomics at gmail.com. Give you a social media handle, but we're old, and that feels like too much work. I'm Roman Segel. And I am and have always been Ryan Joe.